Welcome to the Consumer Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Willis, the co-practice leader of Troutman Pepper's Consumer Financial Services Regulatory Group. And we have a great episode for you today about service member protection in the consumer financial services industry. But before we jump into that, let me remind you to visit and subscribe to our blog at consumerfinancialservicesLawMonitor.com, where we post new material every day about current goings on in the consumer finance industry. And don't forget to check out our other podcast, FCRA Focus, which is released monthly on all popular podcast platforms. And if you like our podcast, let us know. Leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. So as I said, today we're going to be talking about the protection of members of the military and their dependents under two key federal statutes, the Military Lending Act and the Service Members Civil Relief Act. And we have a great guest to tell you all about that, which is my partner, Tony Kay, who is in Salt Lake City and is our expert on all things Military Lending Act and SCRA. So Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. So let's just like set the background for the audience first. Can you just give us a brief description of like what is the difference between and what is covered by the MLA, the Military Lending Act, and the Service Members Civil Relief Act? Both in general protect active duty service members. That's not the big difference between them. But what is different is that the Service Members Civil Relief Act was enacted to protect people who go on to active duty, who might not, who, who weren't on active duty before. So, you know, let's say you are in the uh, National Guard and you get activated. So now all of a sudden you are sent to, to a foreign country, you're on active duty. All of your uh, financial obligations now get subjected to the SCRA and it's 6% rate limitation. Um, that's intended to protect you from sort of the unexpected financial problems that a service member might encounter when called to active duty. The Military Lending Act, by contrast, was well, initially intended to deal more with predatory lending. So payday loans and that sort of thing. But it was expanded, as most people know, in 2015 to cover a much broader spectrum of financial products. The Military Lending Act, by contrast, applies to service members who apply for credit while they are already on active duty. So it doesn't give them as strong a protection, right? The cap under the Service Members Civil Relief Act is 6%. That's a real big drop if you got surprised and were sent overseas. Uh, as compared to the restrictions under the Military Lending Act, which basically protect you from any interest rates over 36%. They, they both have different types of protections. The Service Member Civil Relief Act, which I will call the SCRA on occasion if that is okay, it protects against uh, foreclosures, um, both of vehicles and of homes while you are on active duty, with the idea being that while you're you know, while you're on active duty, you don't have, want to have to worry about your house being foreclosed on and your family being thrown out on the street. And uh, it's generally intended to protect you from collection activities and that sort of thing, um, sort of surprise activities of your lenders while you are off fighting for your country. The Military Lending Act, by contrast, really protects you more in the context of loans that you take out while you are already on active duty. So it protects you on the interest rate. It protects you from being uh, forced to arbitrate. There's a strong prohibition in the Military Lending Act against arbitration, which is consistent with the CFPB's uh, dislike for arbitration in general. It's really intended, uh, another great protection is, you know, you can't use your military allotments, which are, you know, it's a way of setting aside money to pay things, like that cannot be attached or used by lenders to make sure that you're paying your bills, you can't give them checks that are already written out, that those sorts of things. Both statutes are enforced with some vigor by 
the respective agencies responsible for them. In the case of the SCRA, um, that's the Department of Justice because the CFPB doesn't have authority to enforce the SCRA. However, the CFPB does examine concerning the SCRA and will report problems that it observes to the Department of Justice. And the Military Lending Act, of course, can now be enforced directly by the CFPB as a result of the revisions of the Dodd-Frank Act. So thanks for that, Tony. And although a lot of the conversation around service member protection revolves around the two federal statutes that you just mentioned, there are also state analogs to the Service Member Civil Relief Act or MLA. What do they add to our analysis when we think about service member protection? The main thing that they add is that the the SCRA and the Military Lending Act are they're federal laws and they protect service members when they're activated by the president. The main thing that gets added by these state laws is that in the event a governor of a particular state calls a state guard to duty. And so in those cases, most of the states have a law that will protect service members who get activated to go to Florida to you know, deal with cleanup after a hurricane or, you know, to help with a, a hurricane relief efforts. So something like that, you'd be protected by the state laws and not necessarily the federal laws. Now, a lot of the state laws are just mirror images of the federal law. So as soon as the governor issues a call to active duty for usually more than 30 days, then you get all of the protections that you would have under the federal law. Some of the states have, you know, varying protections. Some are, you know, higher, you get more protection than the federal government would give you and some give you less. Okay, thanks. So now that we know the legal landscape that we're operating in, let's talk about some of the key issues that have been percolating around service members in the consumer finance industry for the past few years. The first one was one you mentioned in your introductory comments, which is the protections against either having your house foreclosed on or your vehicle repossessed under the Service Member Civil Relief Act. Can you just tell the audience a little bit about what the issues are there that regulators have called out in the industry? Well, I mean, this is very, this is a very basic issue and a very basic violation of, of the Service Member Civil Relief Act. One thing that uh, lenders should just bear in mind with this problem is that before they foreclose either a car or a home, they have to run a scrub of the SCRA database and make sure that the home, you know, that they intend to foreclose or the car that they intend to foreclose is not owned by an active duty service member who's entitled to the protections of the SCRA. And you'd just be surprised at the number of lenders out there that don't follow that rule. I mean, the expectation of a lot of lenders has been that you know, service members will notify the lender that they're on active duty. And as a practical matter, that hasn't worked, even though the law says that you're supposed to notify the lender to invoke the protections of the SCRA. First of all, that's not really the case when it comes to foreclosures. But as a practical matter, the government hasn't treated it like it's the case. I mean, the government expects you, and this is based on a you know history of consent orders, and as we know, rulemaking via enforcement, you need to affirmatively check these databases to make sure that you are giving service members the protections that they're entitled to. So on that topic, you know, you've talked about the necessity of conducting a scrub against the Department of Defense SCRA database before you go foreclosing on a house or repossessing a car. But let's talk about what issues have the regulators found with identifying eligible service members on the other aspects of protection for both the SCRA and the Military Lending Act, like the interest rate reduction, for example? 
the government has determined in numerous cases that a failure to conduct scrubs of the SCRA database has meant that there's been large numbers of people who are customers of a particular financial institution who have not gotten the benefit of the 6% rate cap. Now, the defense to those sorts of suits, you know, back when this first started happening was, well, the service member, you know, didn't provide a copy of the orders um, that were necessary for us to implement this, and we didn't have to do it without it. That really hasn't flown. Another defense was, well, we obtained a copy of orders in our credit card department, but we didn't get a copy of those orders submitted in connection with a related auto loan. And so we've had consent orders that have indicated that you know once you get as a company a set of orders or forget that, good enough information from the Army or the Navy or the Marines that the person in question is on active duty, then you need to apply the rate cap uh, not only to the account that you were notified about by the service member or that you were first aware of, but you need to check every account that that service member has with your institution and apply the 6% cap to all of them. So that may be a mortgage, it may be an auto loan, it may be a credit card account or a personal loan. You just can't be finicky about how you implement the SCRA. And if you are, the government will take issue with that. So what about under the Military Lending Act? So I I think there has been some regulatory action around the perceived failure of certain types of consumer financial services companies to identify MLA-protected borrowers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? With respect to the MLA, where the government has focused with CIDs and you know other sorts of examinations has been in the short-term small-dollar lending arena. And in that space, you have uh, lenders who are reluctant for one reason or another to avail themselves of the safe harbor allowed under the Military Lending Act. And the safe harbor essentially requires you to run a, a, a check of the Military Lending Act database to see if your consumer is listed. And if that person is listed, then you know your loan needs to be compliant with the MLA and you need to save the documentation. Now, for some businesses, that's really inconvenient, particularly in the small dollar lending industry. The small dollar lending industry, you know, usually just takes a, you know, a copy of a of a driver's license and some basic information on the person's identification. But they don't, for instance, want to take social security numbers because uh, you know there's a potential for the use of social security numbers and the main, the maintenance of them in a database to lead to a, a data breach where they could have a you know broader liability. And so these organizations, uh, instead of getting a social security number and doing a, a check against the database, will do an MLA check the old-fashioned way, which is essentially just to ask the person who's coming in to take a loan out whether or not they are a member of the military on active duty or whether or not they are related to a member of the military on active duty. Now, the downside of this is that you know, you're risking not being told the truth by the service member because sometimes service members, you know, want to be able to get a loan or small dollar loan in particular for one reason or another. And they know that if they are in the military, that the small dollar lender won't make a loan to them because they're not going to make a loan that's uh, below the 36% rate cap. This has led to, you know, several CIDs and an enforcement action where the government's trying to figure out what percent of, of a small dollar lender's uh, portfolio turns out to be members of the military who are on active duty and were entitled to the protections of the MLA. 
And the downside, of course, of a violation is that if the loan is, if it's a small dollar loan and it's been made to a service member on active duty, it's most likely that the interest rate provision has been violated. If there's an arbitration agreement, that's the violation. And, you know, and all of these, all of these violations make the underlying contracts sort of void from inception, which means that the service member gets to keep the proceeds of the loan and get a return of collateral if they put up any collateral for the loan and that sort of thing. As our final sort of hot area, Tony, I wanted to ask you about something where I feel like the industry has been in a lot of area of uncertainty for a long time, and that is the idea of the purchase money provision in the in the Military Lending Act that basically says it's not an MLA-covered loan if it's a purchase money loan for an automobile. And then the back and forth about whether or not the addition of an optional product like gap coverage will render it a covered loan under the MLA or not. And I feel like there's been quite a bit of back and forth about that. Can you bring the listeners up to speed on where we stand on that issue now? And is there any resolution in sight? So the two federal courts that have looked at this have decided that the exception in the statute and also in the rule for purchase money secured auto loans applies notwithstanding the inclusion of gap coverage or something like a vehicle tracking device. I mean, if the consumer has paid for gap coverage, you know, that's just considered by the courts at least to be a you know, something that goes along with the sale of the car. It's no different than the red optional red leather seats that the CFPB said early on would not change your analysis under whether or not this exception applies. The CFPB disagrees vehemently, and one of the cases is on appeal right now, with the CFPB having filed a, an amicus brief on it, and that the CFPB's position is very similar to what its position was with the interpretive guidance, actually, that it that it put out a couple of years ago and then withdrew. And the CFPB views, you know, sort of any ancillary product as being, you know, uh, beyond the scope of what the exception under the Military Lending Act is for purchase money secured auto loans. And they want auto lenders to be extremely careful on how they write these loans. And if the loan is for anything more than the car, you know, and I guess optional red leather seats or something that's affixed to the car but can't be used for you know, any sort of foreclosure activity or repossession activity, those loans they would have covered by the MLA. And that's a lot of loans. I mean, the, the auto industry has been you know, sort of up in arms over the last couple of years with, with many auto lenders not treating a loan that includes gap coverage uh, or something like that as uh as triggering the MLA. And if it turns out on appeal that they're wrong, the downside is that tons and tons of auto loans could be considered to be void ab initio. So there's a lot riding on this. I don't think that it's a strong argument from the government's perspective. I do think if you look at the history of the Military Lending Act, that it is really focused on predatory lending. And it has a very, very straightforward exception for purchase money, auto loans, and for mortgages. And if you, you know, allow the government here to come up with a, you know, a sort of workaround that brings, would bring most 
auto finance transactions within the ambit of the MLA, because most auto finance transactions, you know, do include some form of gap coverage, and they do include various ancillary products uh, and things like negative equity financing. You know, if, if you allow that, then it's going to basically erase what Congress wrote when it drafted the MLA in the first place. What well, sounds like the practical sort of light at the end of the tunnel on this is waiting for the Court of Appeals ruling that you mentioned in the case where the CFPB submitted an amicus brief. Because as far as I know, there's not any other like rulemaking or other activity going on with respect to this, is there? No, there's not. And I mean, uh, we're expecting a decision in that case probably in the next several months because it's, uh, I believe the case is fully briefed. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with that. So, Tony, thanks very much for being on the podcast today and sharing your insights um, with respect to these very important service member protection issues. These remain an area of incredibly high priority for the regulators and therefore risk to members of the financial services industry. And so it's very important for us to remind everybody about those. And let me, of course, also thank our listeners for tuning in to today's episode. Don't forget to visit us at our blog, consumerfinancialservicesLawMonitor.com, and hit that subscribe button so that you can get our updates about all the news that's going on in the consumer financial services universe. And go to our website at troutman.com, add yourself to our consumer financial services email list so you can get copies of our alerts and invitation to our webinars for members of the industry. And of course, be sure to stay tuned for a great new episode of this podcast every Thursday. Thank you all for listening. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including, without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.